0: Matthew 13, probably be hard for us to find a person who didn't know this parable or heard of this parable. But I really think it sets the stage for the passage we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship. And sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And I'll skip down to verse 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any heareth the word of the kingdom, that's the seeds that scattered, we're not the seeds, that's the word of Jesus, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. That is he which receives seed by the wayside and the hard path. But he that receiveth the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a little for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he's offended or he falls away. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word And the care of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some one hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And you might... I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but the following parable is a parable of, war, of how the, the, uh, the, the, the man so, plants in the field and somebody else comes in later, the wicked one, and he plants in the field too. And good crops come up and also tares or weeds along with the good crops. And they say, well, what do you do? And he says, well, first of all, let them grow together in verse 30. Gather them together and then separate the tares. Separate the weeds from what uh, was good. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about one good ground and three that don't make it. And one of those soils that doesn't make it is one that um, is distracted by the cares of this world and falls away. I mean, just the world is just captivating to them. And it's so much more enticing to them than a future invisible promise of glory with Jesus and those people shrivel up and die. That probably would be most applicable to a context like America, wouldn't it? In Hebrews chapter 10 is a context of persecution for your faith. Now, how many of you receive persecution for your faith? Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit, but none like what he's talking about, and none like what many in the world are experiencing. And Jesus' parable says that that, um, that parable, uh, that, that seed is, is planted, and persecution is just too hard, it's too difficult, the cost is too great, and they turn away, and they don't, plant, they don't produce fruit. And I think that's the context here that he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10 here this morning, we're going to see a warning to fear God, and we're going to see the promises of God. Both are motivations. Both are motivations for us as believers. But we need to have the two prongs here. The two prongs. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31, first of all. He says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Instead, this is what remains. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation or anger, wrath, which shall devour the adversaries. And then he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment or greater punishment, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. For we know Him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will repay, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. First of all, this morning, I think we can see very clearly here uh, a fear, a warning, a fear. Verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And here's what he's saying, first of all. There is no plan B. Fear God because there is no plan B. There is, Jesus was a, there is no Jesus the sacrifice. And if you turn away from that, then I got this too. Try this. No. Jesus is plan A. There is no plan B. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There is nothing else. Hebrews chapter one verses one through four, the writer of Hebrews has made it very clear there is nothing else when he says, Half in these last days God has spoken unto us by his son and he leaves it there and he describes the Son. There is no plan B. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What he's talking about is if we abandon Jesus, there is no other lifeboat. There is no other ark in the flood. There is no other shelter from the fire. There is no plan B. So he tells us that because he wants us to hear the warning. And secondly, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse... 28, he says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore or greater responsibility or how much worse punishment do you suppose, he says, will he be thought worthy who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who's counted the blood of Jesus by which he was supposedly sanctified a common thing an insult to the spirit of grace an unclean thing is is uh, is, is how it's uh, an unholy thing is how it's translated here but it means something very common common in other words you treat Jesus like dirt here you're going to be in for a problem and so secondly under the warning if you're God there's it's not just that there's no plan B there is a greater responsibility. What does he mean by that? Well, Moses' uh, law here had pretty serious consequences, didn't it? To those who didn't take heed to Moses' law. But Moses' law was just a shadow, wasn't it? It was pointing to the true and greater, the true reality, the real, the truth, Jesus, the new covenant. And so, how much greater if you? If you, uh, it's one thing if I stomp all over the shadow, right? It's another thing if I go and and, and take a sledgehammer to the real, true substance of Jesus, or I count it common, or I don't, uh, I don't honor or glorify it, set it apart as holy, as as worthy of everything that it asks of me. He says it's an insult to the spirit of grace. He says it's like trampling on Jesus' blood that was just given as a gift for you and your behalf. There's greater responsibility in the new Covenant. Now, we can talk all we want about how in this age we are in the age of grace, and it is so true. But with that grace is tremendous responsibility. There is no condemnation. We just sang that, right? For those in Christ Jesus that's not where the rest of Hebrews or Romans chapter 8 that's not where it stops it talks about a life now that is led by the Spirit there is no plan B and there is a greater responsibility in this new covenant that we've been given so graciously so freely and of course Because of that, then, there are high stakes involved. The highest stakes possible. Look what he says in verse 27. But a certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Uh, In verse 30, for we know him that has said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what he's saying is there are high stakes. Uh, there is a, there, there's a God who is just. And a God who has given us His all. Demands that we not treat His all as dirt. I think what he's talking about in the context here is Jewish believers who have been given the riches of the glory of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And have seen Jesus, understood that, yes, He is the Messiah. And they have said, I have pledged allegiance to the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I received His Word. And they have said this, but now it is becoming very difficult. And they are facing persecution. Verse 33, uh, verse 32, verse 34. And they're being tempted to abandon ship and go back to Judaism. But remember? Judaism isn't plan B. There's no plan B. It's Jesus or nothing. It's plan A. And remember, Judaism and Moses' law pointed to the real Messiah. So there's a greater responsibility here that being given in Jesus. And because of that, they may prove that they were never really genuine. John, the apostle, writes in his letter, they were among us. They went out from us. And he says in essence, to show that they really were not of us. Of us. And folks, it's one thing for me to say something happened to me. It's another thing for my faith to be real. It's another thing for real faith, genuine faith. It's one thing to be attached to a church. It's one thing to even participate in things that are going on in a church. It's another thing for me to be real and genuine in my heart, to have a real relationship with the Lord. It's one thing for me to grow up in church and to say this happened to me and then go out and live as though my father is the father of this world. Folks, there are high stakes. And the reason he gives us this strong language in these passages is to remind us of the danger of... How easy it is, how, how, how dangerous it is, what a slippery slope it is to fall away from the one crucified Savior. To say, I love Him and do my own thing. Notice here, he's not just talking here about chastising, is he? He talks about chastising the rest of chapter 12, chastising his own children, Right? This language is much stronger here. Vengeance. Fire. all right. Um, vengeance is mine. Judgment. Falling into the hands of the living God. One of the most famous sermons in our New England area was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is based on a text in Deuteronomy, but this is where the title came from. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Folks, how Do you remember what Jesus says to, 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 the, to those towns that he ministered in that rejected him? They were with him. They let him speak in the synagogues, etc. And he says, you know what? One day it's going to be more tolerable for those pagan Gentiles than for you who've heard me. We can attach ourselves to our parents' faith. We can attach ourselves to our spouse's faith. We can attach ourselves to a church. But it's got to be real in us. And the writer here is saying it's real because you exercise faith in God's promises. That's where we're going to go next. But first I'll see the warning here. There's no plan B. There is greater responsibility in the New Covenant. And there are high stakes. There are high stakes. And these stakes are eternally high because if you choose something besides Jesus, you have chosen, Galatians 3 tells us, the curse of the law. I guess you could say there is an alternative to Jesus. Here's what it is. Keep the law perfectly. That's the alternative. But the law of God says, cursed is anyone who does not keep the law of God. And none of us can. We fall short of it. So choose Jesus who paid your penalty of sin, what you deserve, who took that wrath of God, who took the high stakes, who who became the plan A, and gives by faith His righteousness for a life and that should flow out of that. And for someone to walk away from Christ after knowing what he's done, after even maybe paying lip service to what he's done, is to walk and to curse. They're choosing curse instead of the new covenant. The word there, consume. uh, uh, Our God is a consuming fire uh, that he'll speak about later on. Here is, is, is an idea of, of uh, our God will wallow those up into unimaginable suffering forever. We know that is referring to hell, eternity. He talks about this in chapter twelve. Look at look at look at um, look at look at what these those who may have played a game, those who were not genuine, may have just attached themselves to something. Look at what they had become. Verse twenty six says. They go on sinning willfully. Willfully, that means a present continuous action. It's the idea they go on sinning, and the word willfully shows us here. It's not just one particular sin in view, but it's a lifestyle of choosing, 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 choosing to please please themselves. It is a sinning against the great grace that God has provided. Someone like Esau, who chapter 12 tells us, came to the place where he could not repent. It's a warning. And verse 27. At the end of the verse, they're called adversaries. The fury of God's fire consumed the adversaries. He's talking about people who have rejected God and now are his opponents. What we call apostates. Those have turned away. Verse 29. He describes them as trampling underfoot the Son of God. The Son of God who laid down his life to receive them as their substitute. And instead of receiving him as their life and hope, they stopped. I don't know about this. And they step over him and go on to other things. The end of 29, it says they regard uh, uh, as unclean the blood of the covenant, or uh, as translated, uh, uh, in, that in some translations, unclean. In other places, here it's translated unholy. Again, it's the idea of common. A common. Ordinary. Jesus' blood order. Nothing precious. Not sacred. And they, perhaps there they, they, are times around the Lord's Supper, they, they, they may have even drunk, the, 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 the juice and said, "Nice juice and went away. sin. Uh, they did not see the blood of Jesus as the most in a sacrifice for us, as the most precious reality in all the universe. Look at verse 29 at the end. As it them, they insulted the spirit of grace. They have done despite unto the spirit of grace. They may have tasted some things. They were influenced by it, but they turned it to justify their sinning and threw it away. Their sinning, by the way, when I say sinning, maybe you're thinking of horrible things. You know what the Bible calls sinning? Not exercising faith. Trust in who God is and what he said. They threw it away as unnecessary. And for these people, here is the idea of God as a consuming fire of vengeance. Which, which, The application is very simple. It's very simple. Take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. You have received the knowledge of the truth. The Son of God has laid down His life for you to receive as your substitute. You, I believe most here would say, I have placed my faith and trust in that. And I turn for myself to Jesus. You have come, uh, 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 do not trample then the Son of God or make light of His blood or insult the Spirit of grace that blows upon your heart even perhaps as we speak. God's warnings are God's mercies to us. He wouldn't give us warnings if He didn't love us. Look at the rest of the passage. Chapter 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance. Remember. Recall the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, <clears throat> uh, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches or mockeries and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used free of compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. You hear that word, recompense? God's a just God, folks. He rewards abandonment of Jesus with His wrath. He rewards embracing of Jesus with great rewards. For ye have need of patience or endurance. Verse 36. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition or damnation, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Here's his point here. He gives us tremendous incentive here with promise. He says, "Take hold of the promise. Grab the promise." He tells us it's a real war. Verse thirty-two and verse thirty-three. There's a war. Verse thirty-two, and thirty-three. Call a remembrance the former days. Uh, you, you, this is that it, Jesus said, um, uh, "In this world, you will face tribulation." Paul makes it so clear in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the spiritual warfare that's going on. This is a war for souls. And and we would be naive to lead someone to Lord Jesus and tell them that everything's going to be wonderful and your finances are going to increase. Your health is going to be fantastic. You're going to get a pay raise at your job because you came to Jesus and did Him a favor. And sadly, that's... In many ways, whether as far as someone like you know Joel Osteen would go, or the prosperity gospel, or in a prosperity light way, sometimes that's communicated And good churches. But there is a war. This is not my final home. This world still has a ruler over it. Now he's not the over ruler. Jesus is the over ruler, but Jesus has given him some freedom, still hasn't he? And that freedom is not outside the bounds of Jesus' power. But understand, there is a war. There is a war. But folks, verse 34 tells us, because there's a war, that means there's a cross that I have to bear. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, Speaking to the crowd, he said, any man will follow me, will come after me. He must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. There is a cross. There is a cross. Because there's a war going on, there is a cross. There is a part that I play as I come face to face with that war. Many times it's a war within my own soul, isn't it? But that's not the whole extent of the war. There's all kinds of outside influences, isn't there? We're in a war, but there's a cross. The cross is me saying, Lord Jesus, by your grace and strength and faith in your precious, tremendous power of your promises. I'm going into this war as a soldier, Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. This cross that we're called to bear endures ridicule and mockery for Christ, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. You were made a mockery, he says, by reproaches and, and afflictions. You became the display to the world of the foolishness of Christ, and they mocked you mercilessly, he says. It's a cross that I have to bear as Jesus. Why? Because Jesus bore that cross. He already bore that cross for me. He says that if they did it to the master, they'll do it to the servants. But folks, someone who bears this cross, and here's the community aspect again from verse 24 and 25, to the togetherness, the, um, the uh, um, uh, our growth in Christ is a community project. Um, Verse 24, let us consider one another to revoke the love and good works, uh, not forsaking our gatherings, our assemblings of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here's, here's an example of this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse um, uh, 33 and 34 of this in practice. Perhaps it wasn't my day to be on... The mockery pedestal. but it was my brothers or my sisters. You know what they did? And, and, and the writer of Hebrews is commending them for this. Reminding them of these things. You know what they did? Look at the end of verse 33. He says, While you became companions of them that were so used... That's the idea here. You became companions of those who were so treated in this way. You stood alongside of them. And if, because there's a cross, I, I bear my own cross. But folks, I bear my brothers' and sisters' burdens as well. I identify with others who are so treated, who who are bearing Christ's reproach, who are being pushed down by the world, and I hold them up. I confess Christ in my reproaches. I am Christ regardless. I hold fast. I link arms with my brothers and sisters. There's a cross that I endure individually, but yet I also come along and I help my brothers and sisters bear theirs as well he says and he uses this to say this is signs of God's grace in your life. Keep it up. Hold on. Hold fast. There's a great promise here. There's a war, yes, and there's a cross because we come in conflict, a conflict with the enemies in that war. But folks, there is a tremendous power here. Tremendous power. Look what he says. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. Verse 34. And took what? Joyfully. You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. They came in and they wrecked your house. Or they knocked over your farm stand in the market. Whatever it was. Or your wares that you were selling in the marketplace. They destroyed them. You're living. But you... We're able to get through that. You bore your cross. Why? Verse 34. Keyword: Knowing. Knowing. I can get through anything in my in life if I know what the real truth is. There were people in concentration champs, camps in Romania and Germany and Poland who were able to get through those concentration camps because they had hope War was not going to be forever. There is a power, a tremendous power of knowing what God's promises are and knowing He is able to get me through that. Look what he says. Knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. They came in, they demolished my home because they hated that I was a Christian. They came in and they, they demolished my business. But you know what? I was able to get through that because that's just one little part of my life. My real treasure's in heaven, my real home's in heaven. I had a better and enduring substance. I was selling rugs. In heaven, streets are gold, right? Cast not away therefore your confidence, your hope, which hath great recompense of reward. Do you get the connection there? Because of what you have in eternity that is invisible, it's an unseen thing. Hence faith. Because faith is an unseen certainty, an absolute certainty in an unseen reality. He says, You can do this joyfully. Wow. None of this stuff that they're talking about sounds like something that I would think would be joyful, that I could do this joyfully. But wait a minute. Do you remember the book of Acts, people who were treated this way? And do you remember Paul and Silas in prison? What are they doing? Um, Do you remember when the apostles were whipped and beaten? And it says they did it joyfully. Why? Because they realized it was identifying them with Jesus. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh? He says, therefore, I can take pleasure and infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses. Why? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So how is this done? How is the tremendous power of trusting God's promises done? Well, comfort and ease and fun and lots of possessions and money and free time to do what we want to do really doesn't deliver. And sometimes we can think, if I get that, I'm rejoicing, and if I don't, I'm going to complain. But here are people, as examples in this passage, who rejoiced when they lost possessions. When they were sharing in sufferings. So somehow here, there is a joy, and this joy seems to be one of the keys to to loving and works. And this power of enduring is rooted in believing God's promises. Not knowing about them, but believing God's promises. Let me, let me tell you a little story here from the Old Testament. There's a prophet in the Old Testament who saw his world come unraveled. Crumble all around him. Um, talking today about different generations and, and how you know, the, the last couple of generations just seen their worlds really unravel here. Uh, crumbling all, all around him. This prophet had watched, and he had prayed, and he had warned the people of what would happen if they didn't turn from their evil ways. He hoped that at least some of them would listen, and that the nation as a whole would, would be brought around to hear and obey. And he waited, and he watched, and he hoped, and he feared, because he knew what the result was to his nation, Israel, if they didn't. And he was right. And here comes the enemy. It's a great enemy. It's fierce. It's strong. He describes it as swift as a leopard, as menacing as a wolf. They laugh at opposition. They sweep away everything in front of their path. And this prophet is wondering, why, God, aren't you acting and stopping them? Why are you letting wicked pagans who profane your name who worship false gods, why are you letting them have their way in the world? Why are you letting them be exalted and proud and worship their own military might and scoop up nations like fish in the sea with a net? And this prophet's name is Habakkuk. And he sees the people of Babylon sweeping through the other empires in the Near East. And Israel is in that path. And he realizes that there is no escape. This is what God has decreed. This will happen, and he finds himself called to a different ministry from what he might have expected as a prophet. And know what his ministry is? He's summoning the people to wait because this is going to happen. No wishful thinking is going to make it go away. But here's this thing: he is summoning the people of God to go and worship a remnant to go on worshiping and praising God when the world falls apart. And it's Habakkuk 3:17 and 18. And those verses are taken from Habakkuk. And the writer of Hebrews puts them right here in Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me. He says, For you have needed patience that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise Obey the Lord. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith,
1: but if any man draw back, my soul shall have
0: no pleasure in him. And in the middle of all this chaos, Habakkuk writes these words, the writer of Hebrews pulls out, puts in here, like a motto. He says, for those who are going to remain faithful, who are going to cling on to the faithfulness of the God of Israel, even when Israel as a nation seemed to be drowning before the pagans themselves, seemed to be more fish in the net. He contrasts the faithful in the book of, Hebrews, or in the book of Habakkuk with those who think they can manage by themselves. For those who manage by themselves, in the book of Habakkuk, he says something to the effect of this. Look at the proud. He says, their spirit is not right in them. But he says, the righteous, and here's what's quoted here, the righteous one, however, shall live by faith. And this saying, of course, is famous in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in Romans 1 and Galatians 3, and it's here as well. It's it's a well-known passage to early Christians. And what Habakkuk means is this. When everything all around is to be turning upside down and inside out, God's true people hold on and finish the course. And faith was what would matter. God's faithfulness to them, and they're answering the response of faithfulness to God. And the writers uh, here, and, and the, book, the writer of the book of Hebrews here, seems to have latched onto that sentence The just shall live by faith. Perhaps they saw, they could see some of the things that were coming down the pike, coming down the line for, for the church, the dangers, the persecutions. But God had made a way, and it was Plan A. And there is a great responsibility to Plan A. And God had promised salvation, rescue, and deliverance in a coming new age. So we can say in verse 35 don't cast Jesus away, because there is great reward for following Jesus. Great reward. What is this better possession, an abiding possession that he's going to go through in chapter 11 remind them of? Well, in chapter 2, verse 15 of Hebrews, Jesus has triumphed over death. Okay? So Jesus has triumphed over death. And that's the worst they can do to you, right? And Jesus has triumphed over the worst they can do to you. Jesus has triumphed and provided a final rest for the saints in the age to come. Chapter 4, verse 9. Jesus has subdued all of our enemies, chapter 2 and verse 13. He has done the most amazing miracle, one that you can't see, an invisible miracle, with purifying your and my conscience and our sin. He has removed and forgot all of our sins, chapter 8, verse 12. He has, here's a here's, here's, here's wonderful truth, he's brought us near to God. Seven nineteen twenty five to know God, He's promised He will be our God forever. Chapter thirteen, He's going to say, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." In other words, we like to think of possessions and and uh, and, and things that are laid up for us as a thing, but this is a person. It's a person. It's a great salvation, a great relationship of enjoying God forever. That's why the psalmist can say, Thou wilt make me to know the path of life in thy presence is fuller, fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And on the basis of this passage, you and I are able to say this and mean it. stumbling over the words and stumbling over our hearts disposition here but only God's people can say this whatever you want to do to my life to make me more like you and have you receive the glory you can do because because I know that the worst thing that could ever happen to me in this life is only going to bring me to glory And therefore, I can accept, I can take pleasure in. Because it's not like you're doing this with with smiles and getting this here. There's a resolute, fixed gaze on Jesus as you're going through this. That's what joyfully is here. I can accept and give myself to you, Jesus, because you gave all of yourself for me. That's what a passage like this tells us. For me to turn away from that would be so empty. And folks, that's why this passage comes on the heels of 24 and 25, where we're told to remind each other continually. So I wonder, with maybe some feedback from you this, this morning here, how can we remind each other continually how terrible the price is of throwing away our confidence and encourage one another? How can we remind each other how terrible it is to, 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 and how easy and deceitful it is to walk away from Jesus? And how can we remind each other continually how great the reward of cherishing the promises of God above earthly things are? That's a real question. How can we remind each other how conti- continually, how terrible the price is of leaving Jesus and how great the reward is of cherishing Jesus? We talk about Jesus to each other. We pray for each other. So how can you do that this week? I was talking to someone yesterday, going through something very difficult. A relational thing very difficult. Feeling betrayed. Not really knowing how to process it. And I don't know that there's any clear answers. But you know what? Psalm fifty five tells about a man who was betrayed. David. And he works through it. And I don't know that there was any resolution being betrayed with Absalom, his own son. Absalom was killed. But it was that event that enabled David to trust in all that God said he was to David. So can you think that way? How can I encourage one another to go on? It might be something that you might not think is a huge deal. It might be a, a mom struggling to get through the day with his kids before she you know, throws them down the stairs and locks the door. It might be somebody at work with just a very difficult work situation with a boss or an employee who's just making life very difficult. It might be your own marriage, your own family, burdens of your own hearts. It might be, might be something that... Um, has happened a sickness or disease? and anyway, God, are you abandoning me? How can you build up each other with these truths? But it is a terrible thing to fall away from our allegiance to Christ. And it is a glorious thing to embrace the promises of Jesus.